you got a Bible or a device, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's where we're going to be. And uh, in this series on 1 Corinthians, we have been dealing with some challenging topics in recent weeks, and today is no different. Um, it, uh, today, we're talking about the topic of divorce. We're talking about divorce. Now, divorce is never part of the plan, but divorce frequently becomes a painful part of the story. There's a stat that circulates uh, that you've maybe heard that about 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Well, that stat's actually a fiction, but the truth is not that much better. I did some digging, and the best research that I could find uh, shows that about 39% of all first-time marriages and a higher percentage of subsequent marriages end in divorce these days. And for that reason, divorce touches all of us. Some of us have experienced parents divorcing when we were young. Others of us here today have been through a divorce ourselves. Some of us have watched friends and relatives or even our own children go through a divorce. Uh, Just this last week, I heard about one friend who had recently divorced his wife, and I talked to another friend who's kind of in the process and considering divorce right now. Divorce touches all of us. And our passage today is one of the longest and clearest teachings on divorce in the Bible. So today we're going to look closely at what the Bible says about divorce. Now, to frame this for us this morning, I want to use an analogy from the world of sports. I'm a sports guy. My day job, I work with athletes in action. I love sports. And so if you're not into sports, you got to forgive me this morning. I have to drop some sports on you. So we're going sports. But I want to use an analogy from the world of sports uh, to kind of introduce the framework of the Apostle Paul's ethical teaching. The deal is that uh, all of us, as we go through life, we're playing for some kind of team in the world. And then when you come to faith in Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, what Jesus does is he drafts you onto his team and you become part of team Jesus. You join a new team. And those of you who have ever played on teams before, maybe, maybe you've been in a band or you've, uh, you, you've been on a team at work. If you're ever on a team of any kind, when you change teams, there's a new way of doing things on a new team. Like your team shapes the way that things happen in your life. And if you change teams, you get a new way of doing things. And when you believe in Jesus, what happens is you get a new playbook for life. You know, you're living for the world, you're living in the world, you're you're on this team, and you're living a certain way. But when you believe in Jesus, it comes with a new playbook for how you're going to live. You don't run that playbook in order to get on the team. You you can't. You can't run the playbook. Like, the, the fact for all of us is that we have not run the playbook. That's our problem. All of us have fallen short of God's standards. We don't run the playbook. But Jesus, in his great love for us, he, he drafts us. He picks us up in the draft. He says, hey, I want you on my team. And he rescues you and he puts you on his team. But when he puts you on his team, he gives you this new playbook. And because you're on the team, because you belong to Jesus, because you believed in Jesus, because Jesus has saved you, now you run the playbook. That's the Christian life. And Paul, in these chapters of 1 Corinthians, in this section we've been in, what he's doing is he's walking through the playbook. He's showing us the plays that members of Team Jesus do and do not run. And our text today, it's the playbook regarding divorce. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read our text, and we're going to walk carefully through it. And we won't be able to say everything that needs to be said or could be said regarding divorce this morning. So if you have questions about anything that comes up in the sermon, ask Rafe. Go to him. (laughs) All right? Uh, But my aim today is for you to walk out of here with a ton of clarity around what the Bible says regarding divorce and how it applies to each of our lives, wherever we're sitting, whatever kind of relationship circumstances we're in right now. That's where we're going. So read this with me. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We start in verse 10. The word of the Lord. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. 
The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask now that you would help us. This is a challenging text on a difficult topic, a sensitive subject that affects us deeply. And we need your help to understand it rightly and apply it rightly. And so I ask now that you would speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we open your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look at verses 10 and 11. Paul writes, To the married. So he begins here by talking to Christians who are married to other Christians. These are Christian couples. And the main line of what he says to them is this. He says, to the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So what is Paul saying to these Christian married couples? Saying, don't divorce. The word separate and divorce there, they mean the same, the same idea in the Greek. So not, it's not two different concepts, same idea. And Paul is telling Christian couples here not to divorce. That's a play that Team Jesus doesn't run. Not part of the playbook. Then look at verses 12 and 13. Because here, Paul introduces a slightly different situation. In verse 12, he addresses the rest. So in verse 8, which you looked at last week, in verse 8, Paul talked to single people who aren't married to anybody. And then in verse 10, he talked to Christians who are married to other Christians. And now he addresses everybody else. And who's left? Who, who is everybody else? Well, this would be Christians who are married to non-Christians. Now, this relationship situation is not uncommon in our day, but it was even more common in Paul's day. And that was not because Christians were running around marrying non-Christians all the time. It was because Paul would go into cities and he would start preaching the gospel. And in these cities, no one was a Christian. He'd show up and he'd start preaching the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, some of those people who were not Christians, they believed in Jesus and they became Christians. And some of those people who became Christians, well, they were already married to people who were not Christians. They were already in relationships. And so when they believed, you got this situation where now you have a marriage where one person is a member of Team Jesus and the other person is playing for a different team. And that raised some major questions. Like if that's you, if you find yourself in that situation, you just became a Christian, you're trying to follow Jesus and your spouse is not, what do you do? Do you stay in that relationship? Do you stay married? Or do you end that relationship and go find another member of Team Jesus and get hooked up with that person? So you're on the same team. How do you handle that? That was a major dilemma for the church in Corinth. And look at what Paul says to them. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So Christian man, 
as long as your wife doesn't walk out on you, you don't divorce her. Christian husbands, divorce is not part of your playbook. Then look at verse 13. And a quick side note here, but this is actually remarkable, and we need to take note of it. In a patriarchal society like ancient Rome, the ancient Roman Empire and first century Corinth, where women had very few rights, who does Paul address in verse 13? Who's he talking to? Women. And it's actually the second time in this passage he does that. Back in verse 11, he started off by addressing wives, and then all throughout this passage, he dignifies women by giving them equal attention. See, Christians sometimes get accused of being misogynistic, prejudiced against women. And this is not at all to deny that Christians often have been misogynistic and prejudiced against women. Like, that has happened. It does happen in certain churches and certain traditions. That has happened. What I want you to see here is that that is not because of the Bible. The Bible consistently elevates and dignifies women in ways that the first century world did not and in ways that our 21st century world does not. Now, as Paul addresses women in verse 13, he says the same thing to them that he just said to the men in the previous verse. He says, if you've got a non-believing husband and he's cool sticking it out with you, don't divorce him. So Christian wives, divorce is not part of your playbook. So in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, four times in these verses, Paul says not to divorce. And all four times in the Greek, it's a command. It's an imperative. He's commanding us not to get divorced. He says, believers, you don't do that. It's not in the playbook. So here is the main idea, the main point in this passage today. Divorce is a play that members of Team Jesus generally do not run. Divorce is a play that members of Team Jesus generally do not run. Now, I'm guessing here today that that does not come as a huge shock to any of you. But in a culture where divorce is a very big part of the playbook, this kind of command can seem very radical. And it can seem kind of radical and extreme to exclude divorce from the playbook. And while I don't think that most people, whether Christian or non-Christian alike, like most people do not go to the altar dreaming of the day when they get divorced someday. Like they're not standing there saying their vows, thinking, I can't wait to divorce this person. You know, like that, that's generally not the story. But what happens is a few years down the line, you get into marriage and you, and you wake up every morning and you stand face to face with this other sinful human being who's revealing all of your flaws and your sin to you. And, and all your stuff is coming out inside a marriage and marriage gets tough. And maybe when you add a global pandemic and all the chaos of the last few years into the mix, like maybe, maybe marriage just feels really, really hard. And if you find yourself in that situation, you might really want divorce to be a part of the playbook. Like if your marriage is hurting, divorce can seem like a really attractive option. For some of you sitting here today, that might be you right now. You might be in that place. And if you're in that spot, sometimes the mere command, somebody saying to you, hey, don't do it, don't get divorced, it's, it's wrong, don't do it. Sometimes that's not quite enough. Sometimes you, sometimes you need something more. Sometimes you need a little deeper reason. And thankfully, this passage gives us more than just the command. It also gives us reasons. For starters, it gives us two practical reasons. The first is for the sake of your family. Look at verse 14. 
Paul is saying that if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stick uh, to stay married to the believer, you should stick it out because of the way that marriage can shape your family. One of the concerns these early Christians had, and that I'm sure some modern Christians have, is that if you're if you're a Christian, you join Team Jesus, and you're married to a non-Christian, that somehow that being married to someone who's not a believer, that somehow it like taints you. It makes you less holy, less, less acceptable to God. Somehow you're inferior because of that marriage. And Paul is writing here in verse 14 to confront that lie. He says, the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of the believing spouse. And then he goes on to say that your children are also holy. Now, Paul is not saying here that being married to a believer automatically saves everyone in the family or automatically morally improves everyone in the family. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that marriage, it brings unbelieving spouses and children into the sphere of influence where the Team Jesus playbook can kind of rub off on them. It puts you in proximity to believers and it puts you in proximity to people who are following Christ. And in that proximity, the Christ-like lifestyle of the believer, and this is assuming that the believer is really following Jesus and is trying to live out the commands of the Bible and, and honoring God in the relationship. But, but being married in a situation like that, it puts the unbelievers into a situation where they're exposed to the life of Christ. And that can have a really positive effect on the family, family as a whole, on the, on the life in the home. It can shape life there and have a positive effect. So that's the first reason. And then the second practical reason is for the sake of your spouse. Look at verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If you're married to an unbeliever, you don't know how God might use you in that person's life over the long haul. Paul's not guaranteeing salvation here, but he is holding it out as a possibility. Like God might use you to bring your spouse to saving faith in Christ. Your spouse, your spouse, your spouse, your spouse might watch your life, might see your faith, might see how you love him or her with the love of Christ, might see the difference that Jesus makes in your life. And your spouse might be drawn to Christ through your witness. Again, there's no guarantee, but it's more likely being in the sphere of your influence than it might be otherwise. And so Paul says, don't divorce, stay married. Now, Paul's not saying that single Christians, some, many of you are single here, he's not saying that you should go out seeking non-believing spouses so you can try this out. This is not an endorsement of missionary dating, okay? But he is saying that if you're already married to a non-believer when you become a Christian, you are not lesser because of it. You're not inferior. And in fact, God can use you to impact your family and he can use you to impact your spouse. And so stick it out. So don't divorce a non-believing spouse because of how your marriage can positively impact your family and your spouse. Now those are the practical reasons not to divorce. And they're given specifically to Christians who are married to non-Christians. But that's not all Paul gives us here. Because undergirding and supporting everything else Paul says is something much deeper that applies to all marriages. And we see a hint of it in verse 10. In verse 10, Paul writes, to the married, I give this charge. And then in parentheses, you'll see he says, not I, but the Lord. In verse 12, he flips that formula around. He says, I, not the Lord. So the Lord here is Jesus. And Paul is commenting on what Jesus did and did not directly address during his earthly ministry. 
Now, all of this, everything in this passage, it carries the same biblical and ethical weight. All of this is Bible. All of this is God's word. But Jesus himself, during his teaching ministry, he did not directly speak to the verse 12 and 13 issue of a believer being married to a non-believer. He didn't talk about that. But he did directly speak to the verse 10 and 11 issue of believers in marriage and divorce. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, not I, but the Lord. Because he's sa- what he's saying here is essentially a retweet of what Jesus said first. And it's in what Jesus said first that we see the deeper reason not to divorce. So what did Jesus say first? Well, there are four different places in the Gospels where Jesus talks about divorce. Two of those are very brief comments. One is Matthew 5, 31 and 32. The other is Luke 16, 18, if you want to look those up later. The other two places are more extended, and they're actually parallel accounts of the same scene. And in that scene, Jesus talks about divorce in conversation with the religious leaders uh, who disagreed with his position. They, they, were, they were kind of testing him and, and challenging him on it. One of those is Mark 10, 1 through 12, and then the other is this text you're going to see behind me. This is Matthew 19, 3 through 6. And this is what Jesus says about divorce. Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can I just go out and get a divorce because I want to? Is, Is it okay? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they asked Jesus, is divorce part of the playbook? Can you do it? And notice how Jesus responds. He takes them to God's word. He says, have you not read? And he's referencing Genesis chapters one and two at the very beginning of the Bible. And he's talking about God's original design for marriage. In verse 5, he quotes Genesis 2, 24, which is the key text in the whole Bible when it comes to marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the architect's blueprint for marriage, right here. And according to the architect, do you know what marriage is? Marriage is bad math. Marriage is bad math. See, marriage is not one half plus one half equals one. It is not the romanticized Hollywood kind of relationship you see in the movies. Anybody remember Jerry Maguire, the movie Jerry Maguire back in the day? Anybody? Am I dating myself here? Okay, a few people? All right. Okay, thank you. Rafe is with me. He loves this movie. But in Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise is this high-powered sports agent, and he, he, over time, eventually gets in this relationship with his secretary, and they fall in love. And the, the climax of the movie, there's this, there's this scene that women everywhere loved, right? And what does Tom Cruise say to his secretary? What, what is it? Well, not show me the money. <laughs> that's a, I think that's a different movie. Um, what does Tom Cruise say to his secretary in that moment? You complete me. You complete me. You make me whole. I'm an incomplete person, but with you, I'm whole. I'm complete, right? Like, this is not that. This is not that. No other human being ever can or will complete you. They can't. Only God can do that. 
And if you put that kind of pressure on a relationship, you're gonna smother the other person and you're gonna end up sorely disappointed because no other person can complete you. And if you go into the relationship expecting this person to complete you, you're gonna expect way too much out of your spouse and you're never gonna be complete. You'll never be whole. So it's not one half plus one half equals one. Marriage is also not one plus one equals two. It's not the mere partnership, a mutual agreement of two individuals to say, hey, we're gonna pair up for a while. We're gonna join forces together. We're gonna form a team. We're gonna go after it together. It's not just that. It's not a temporary consumer kind of relationship like what you might have with your internet provider. Where you're like, hey, I got a good deal. This is working out for me. I like the way this is working. I'm committed as long as I have a good deal. But I'm kind of scanning the horizon and looking, can I get a better deal somewhere else? Can I find a better partner to pair up with where things would be better for me? Right, and if you find a better deal, you break up with that partner and you go to a new partner. It's not one plus one equals two like that. It's not a consumer relationship. No, marriage is not one half plus one half equals one. It's not one plus one equals two. It's not math that actually works. It's not math where you can take the, the sum and you can divide it back out and get the original parts back out. It doesn't work like that. No, marriage in the Bible is bad math. It's one plus one equals one. It's one plus one equals one. It is the lifelong joining together of a man and a woman in a one flesh union. When you get married, you commit to giving your whole self to the other person for the whole of your life. That means relationally, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, financially, and physically. You join your schedules, your bank accounts, your social networks, your passwords. You join everything. You don't lose your individuality. You come into the relationship as a whole person. You're a full one coming in but you're giving your whole person to this whole other person and you're committing the whole of yourself to love and serve the whole of that person for the whole of your lives together. And when you come together physically and you have sex with one another, you're doing with your bodies what you've already committed to doing with your lives. See, marriage is bad math. It is one plus one equals one. One plus one equals one. And Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6, that God is the one who makes that bad math possible. What God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, Jesus anchors his view of marriage and divorce in the bad math of God's blueprint. His objection to divorce is theological and spiritual. It is based on God's design for marriage. And that design... It goes even deeper. Paul, who's the same guy writing to the Corinthians in our passage today, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he further elaborates on the blueprint. He quotes the same text from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And then he comments like this. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says the bad math of marriage is a profound mystery, right? Like it, it blows your mind how that bad math works. It doesn't make sense. It's, 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 it's abstract. It's hard to wrap your head around. It's a profound mystery. And then he says that bad math, it refers to Christ in the church. Now, do you know what this is? Take a look at this picture. Anybody know what this is? Yeah, this is a picture of Kinsey, my wife and I, on our wedding day. She's sitting over, right over there. 
And uh, as you look at this picture, like my bride is radiant here, right? Like she's beautiful. She's, she's just glowing on this day. It was an awesome day. She's still radiant. She's still beautiful. Uh, but th- th- this was a, an especially radiant day. Like it was just awesome, right? This is a special day. And, and it was just, it was the best party we were, we've ever been a part of. It was just so fun. Some of you who are married, you know, you've had this experience. You know what that's like. Your wedding day is awesome, right? And most of you were not there. There is one couple, uh, Pat and Christine, who, who were at our wedding, but the rest of y'all were not at our wedding. We did not know you. Um, you were not on the horizon of our lives. We did not know you. But as you look at this picture, as you look at this image, you can imagine that day. You can see a little bit from looking at this what that day was like. You can see the, the color and the life and the people. You get a feel for who, a little more who we are and what we're all about, what our relationship is like. You learn some things about us by looking at this image, right? Now, this picture is not our wedding day, but this picture refers to our wedding day. This is a pointer to that day. When you look at this, you're supposed to picture that. And which came first, this or that? Like, which is the real thing? Is it the, is it the wedding? Is it the, is it the substance of our relationship? Or is it the picture? Which is the original? Which is the real thing? Right? It's us. It's, it's the relationship. It's the wedding itself. That's the real thing. And the picture just points to that thing. And when it comes to marriage, which comes first? The picture of human marriage or the real thing of God's relationship to his people? See, human marriage, it's intended to refer to a greater marriage. Human marriage is a momentary picture of the eternal and far more glorious marriage between God and his people. Marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. Christ who gave himself entirely for us. And we, the church, who exist entirely for Christ. In short, marriage is designed to be a picture of the gospel. The gospel is the real thing. Human marriage is just the picture of it. And the fundamental problem with divorce is that when you take that picture and you tear it in half, you distort the image of the thing that it's supposed to represent. Marriage is supposed to tell the gospel story. The story of a God who is so committed to his people that he literally gave his life for them. The story of a God who loves his people with a never failing, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. That is the story that marriage is supposed to tell. But divorce tells a different story. And that's the problem with divorce. It tells the wrong story about God. You see, the topic of our text and the topic of this sermon today is divorce. But when we talk about divorce, and when Paul and Jesus talk about divorce, what we're doing, we're not really just prohibiting divorce. What we're doing is we're elevating and we're celebrating marriage. Marriage is such a good thing with such theological and spiritual and practical significance that we can't treat it like it's just a piece of paper that can be torn up whenever we get tired of it, whenever it gets hard, or whenever, whenever we want to move on. See, for Christians, marriage and divorce are far more about God than they are about us. And for that reason, the Team Jesus playbook generally prohibits divorce. That's the reason. Because of what's at stake. Now, does that mean, 
that divorce is always wrong? Are there situations in which divorce is the right play? Well, in the Bible, divorce is never commanded, but it is sometimes permitted. There are two clear exceptions in Scripture to the general biblical prohibition on divorce. Jesus talks about one, and Paul talks about the other. So that Matthew 19 text we looked at earlier, it finishes with Jesus saying this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then in Matthew 5, 32, he says essentially the same thing. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we've talked about sexual immorality several times in the last several weeks. And when one party in a marriage is engaging in sexual activity outside of that marriage, what that partner is doing is violating that one flesh commitment and covenant of marriage. And if that's happening, if one partner is is engaging in that kind of extramarital sexual activity, then the innocent party biblically has the freedom to divorce. So sexual immorality is one scenario in which divorce is permissible. The other scenario is the one Paul talks about in our passage today. Look at verse 15. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So as a Christian, you are called to peace. If your spouse stays in the marriage, you seek to live peaceably with your spouse. Your mission is to be a great witness, to live like Christ in the home, to try to promote an atmosphere of of peace and spiritual peace and bring God's peace into the home. But if your spouse walks out, if your spouse leaves and quits on the marriage and abandons you, you are likewise called to peace. You're not trapped in a non-existent marriage to someone who is no longer there. You have the freedom to move on and live in peace elsewhere. So biblically, these are the two clear scenarios in which divorce is permissible. Sexual immorality and desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now I need to also acknowledge here that some raise the possibility of a third scenario, that of abuse to the spouse or to the children. Um, And that abuse could be physical, sexual, psychological, but abuse in general is something that some raise as a third possibility. Now, the Bible is not explicit on this front of divorce, or uh, on this front of abuse. And theologians debate this question, and I think for good reasons. And Rafe can talk about that in his podcast this week and give you more detail on it. But what is clear, and what absolutely needs to be said regarding abuse is this. If you find yourself, or someone you know and love, if you find yourself in a situation where abuse is happening, the first step is to physically get out of that situation. No one should ever stay in physical proximity to an abuser. So move out, get away, go stay with a friend. Start by physically getting away. If you've got a friend who's in that kind of situation, who's being abused, get that person out. Help that person, right? Get them away from the abuse. Do not stay in a a dangerous situation. Get out of that situation. If that's you right now, I plead with you, get out. Let the church help you. Get out, okay? And then, and this is really an important step in any of these scenarios. If you're considering divorce at all, if divorce is on your radar, you're thinking about it, 
What you need to do is you need to bring wise Christians into the situation with you to get wisdom on the best course of action going forward. This is one of the functions of elders in the local church. It is to help the body of Christ apply God's word to the complexities of life. And so if you're dealing with a spouse who is cheating or leaving or abusing, please come talk to your pastors and your elders about that situation. Your leaders love you here. And your leaders will want to help you. They are for you and they will help you navigate through those complexities. So if that's you, come talk to them, okay? Now, one last feature of our passage today. In verse 11, Paul adds a parenthetical comment. He says, if a wife separates, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And Paul here is again echoing Jesus. Jesus said that if you divorce on unbiblical grounds and you marry someone else, you're committing adultery. And that makes sense because the the first marriage would still be valid, and yet you're joining yourself to someone else. So Paul says your choices, if you do not have biblical grounds for divorce, your choices are to stay single or to reconcile with your spouse. So if you're a Christian and your divorce is not biblically permissible, then remarriage likewise is not biblically permissible. You can stay single or you can fix things with your first spouse, but you cannot remarry someone else. So let me sum up what we've said today. I'll give you a little summary. One, divorce is not usually part of the Team Jesus playbook. Two, divorce is never commanded, but it is sometimes permitted. Three, when divorce is not permitted, remarriage also is not permitted. And four, All of that is because divorce tells the wrong story about God and the gospel. Now, let me get really practical here. I want to finish this morning by addressing some of you who are in various life and relationship stages that this text might touch. So for those of you who are currently single and who are desiring marriage in the future, marriage is a really good thing. It is a good gift from a good God. But marriage is not the best thing. God is the best thing. And your life is like a race. And as you go through life, you want to run toward the best thing. You want to run toward God. You fix your eyes on him. You're running the race toward Jesus. He's the finish line. He's the prize. He's the goal. And you're fixing your eyes on him, and you're running toward Jesus. And as you run through life, you're going to pass people who are running in some different directions. You're going to be running, and, and there may be somebody who's coming this direction. You're like, oh, I kind of like that person. Wow. You know, and you, you, you want to start running this way. But if you start going this way, what happens to your race? You get off course. You lose sight of the best thing. And you'll be running, and somebody will come across this way, and you're like, oh. But if you start going this way, what happens to your race? And you're running, and somebody's going, kind of run alongside you, but then you realize, like, actually, they're heading over there. What happens to your race? You get off course, you lose the best thing. What you need to do, if you're single, you want to be married someday, what you need to do is fix your eyes on the best thing. Run toward Jesus, fix your eyes on him. Run that race, looking straight ahead. And as you're running, someday you look over and you're like, wow, you're running this, you're going there too? Like, let's go together. Let's run together. You need someone who's running the same race with you. Don't get off course. Run your race toward Jesus. Look for someone who's running that same race. That doesn't divorce-proof your marriage, but it sure helps. Makes it a lot more likely. If you're both running to the same destination, running the same race, it makes things a lot easier as you go forward. So don't settle. Don't get off course. 
Now, for those of you who are seriously dating or recently engaged, Stephen, before you tie the knot, take some time to do some premarital counseling. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You can prevent a lot of future problems by doing some work on the front end. So talking with a pastor or a counselor, working through some key discussions can really help you to avoid some landmines once you do get married. So take time to do that premarital counseling before you get married. Now, for those of you who are currently married, there's a number of married couples in this congregation, the fact that texts like this one appear in the Bible, it is an acknowledgement that sometimes marriage can be really hard. And if you are in a tough spot in your marriage right now, you need to know that you're not alone. That is true for lots and lots and lots of couples, including lots and lots of faithful Christian couples. Marriage can be hard. Um, overall, Kinsey and I, we've had a really healthy relationship over the course of our marriage. But along the way, we've had some difficult seasons where we've gone and we've met with counselors and we've gotten outside help. And there is no shame in that. It's actually really honorable to go and to, to invest in your marriage that way. And so if you're struggling right now, if you're in a tough spot, my encouragement is to keep working on it and let the church help you. Talk to one of your pastors or your deacons or your small group leader. The church wants to come around you and help you fight for your marriage. So if you're struggling right now, don't quit. Keep going. Whether you have biblical grounds for divorce or not, consider what a testimony to the gospel of the grace of God and to our glorious great God that it would be to see your marriage strengthened and healed and restored. So stick it out. Keep working on it. And if you're married here today and you're not struggling right now, if your marriage is healthy right now, keep protecting and nurturing your marriage. Don't think for a second that your marriage is above temptation or beyond the possibility of failure. It's not. Your marriage is like a plant that needs regular sunshine and water. You gotta keep investing in it. So pursue your spouse. Pray together. Cultivate and protect and nourish your relationship. Go on dates together. Go on vacation together. Get time away from the kids. Like, you need to invest in that relationship. You need to take good care of your bad mouth. Take good care of your bad mouth. And finally, if you're here today and you have divorced, you need to know today that you are loved. You are loved by God and you are loved by your church. Divorce happens in a lot of different circumstances for a lot of different reasons. And I don't know your individual stories, but what I do know is the gospel story. And that story is the story of a God who loves his people with a never failing, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. All of us in relation to God are like a really bad spouse. We've all cheated on him and abandoned him and betrayed him throughout our lives. And yet he never stops loving us. He is perfectly faithful. And because he is, no matter what you have done or no matter what has been done to you, God loved you so much that he came in the person of Jesus and he laid down his life for you to give new life to you. And if you have trusted in him, regardless of your story, his love is yours now and forever. Through faith in Christ, through faith in Jesus alone, you become part of Team Jesus and you belong in God's family and you belong here in this church family. So know today that you are loved and know that your church wants to come around you and help you to grieve or to grow or to find hope or healing or whatever you need in this season of your life. And if you're here today and you haven't yet tasted God's great love for you yet, man, let today be that day. Let today be that day. Trust in Jesus. Join his family. 
Know his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for yourself. You are the best thing. You are the greatest thing. And it is remarkable the way in which you love us, the way you pursue us, the way that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. And I pray today for each of us that uh, our lives would be run toward you, that we would fix our eyes on you in whatever relationship situation we're in. I pray for those who are single, that you'd, you would help them to run hard after you, not compromise, not settle, but to pursue you and to wait on you to provide a godly spouse to run with them. I pray you give them patience in that race. I pray for those who are married, that you'd strengthen those marriages, strengthen the marriages in this room. Would our marriages reflect the gospel to a watching world? Would we be people who glorify you in the way that we love and serve one another inside of marriage? I pray for those who are really struggling right now. Would you help them? Would you meet them in the midst of these struggles? Would you be a, a source of healing and hope and help? Would you help them, give them the courage today even to reach out and ask for that help? And I pray for those who've been divorced. Would they know your mercy and your grace and your love for them today? And for all of us, would you draw our hearts closer to you? Would we live in great relationship with you forever? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.